This episode is brought to you by Dragon Ball Legends, the mobile fighting game based on the Dragon Ball series. Featuring high-quality 3D graphics and authentic voice acting, the game follows Shallot, an original character, and his adventures with Goku and others. With intuitive controls and simple card-based gameplay, unleash combos and powerful team-based attacks. Battle players around the world in friendly matches, compete in the rankings, or team up in co-op. And now Dragon Ball Legends 5th anniversary is on. Download Dragon Ball Legends today. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. Typically, the top challenge is still establishing the legitimacy of the field, both with um, consumers and with other businesses that might buy from business-to-business social enterprises, and also convincing governments of the merits of social enterprise and the wider social economy and why it might be useful for our uh, broader economy to stimulate markets for them. Those were the insightful words of Joe Barraquette, reflecting on some of the barriers that social enterprises face here in Australia. Joe is a professor and director at the Centre for Social Impact right here at Swinburne University. A short bit of housekeeping and then we'll get back to Joe. Due to popular demand, I've now made our Humans of Purpose Plus segments free in every episode as I like the vibrancy and texture that they add to each conversation, breaking things up and allowing us to go a bit deeper as a bonus segment. If you've thought about podcasting before and whether it can have an impact for you or your organisation, I'm excited to be running a Podcasting for Impact webinar in partnership with Pobono Australia tomorrow, Thursday, 7th of November at 2pm. Naturally, Humans of Purpose listeners will get 30% off tickets by entering promo code PURPOSE. You'll find a link in our show notes or just head to probonoaustralia.com.au and it'll be there in the events section. Failing that, head to probonoaustralia.com.au slash events slash podcasting dash four dash impact. Repatreon, we've doubled our Patreon supporters since our recent Typeform survey, which has been terrific for the show, so I'm grateful to those who have stepped up to support us. On that note, a big thank you to Patreon supporters McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Misha Times 2, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, B, and Will. Your support helps us to keep posting up quality content each and every week. Well, as I mentioned before, I'm thrilled today to have Joe Barraquette on the podcast. Joe is a professor and director at the Centre for Social Impact at Swinburne University. I've been a fan of Joe's work since I saw her speak at the Social Enterprise Conference at Swinburne many years ago. It's safe to say Joe and her team at CSI play a vital role in shaping thought leadership, academic progress, and ecosystem development for the social enterprise, startup, and social impact sectors across Australia, but especially here in Melbourne. I really enjoyed talking with Joe and think you'll enjoy our conversation too. Joe, thank you so much for hosting me at CSI. Great to be here with you. Thanks for coming in and seeing us. Oh, absolute pleasure. Well, I've been following your work for a long time, but I'd really like to start off by getting an idea as to your journey into the space and how you ended up here today. Yeah, so it's a question I'm asked from time to time and I come up with slightly different versions each time. But I guess the fundamentals, if we start when I was a little kid, um, my parents had a significant influence on I guess where I've ended up uh, on my mum's side, my mum and my stepfather really instilled in me quite a strong sense of social social justice and we were out, you know, at Palm Sunday marches pretty early on in my life and um, 
my stepfather was a conscientious objector from Vietnam. So all of that uh, influenced my sense of social justice and social purpose in the world. And then my dad uh, is very entrepreneurial and um, has really, I think, sparked my interest in the role of the market. And uh, I must admit to having a bit of frisson around making money. It's just in my case, I like to make money for good <laughs> um, rather than for personal gain. So that's a sort of childhood background. Um, I then became a young environmental activist when I was at university and I was studying English literature and doing an honours degree on Dr Seuss, which I found really fascinating. Um, but at the same time, I was kind of conscious that my values and my area of research weren't really lining up. And around that time, I got active in the cooperative movement. And I was also involved in several environmental uh, campaigning organisations. And I was really struck when I was involved in a community cooperative, I was really struck by the fact that because that organisation made its own money through trading, it had two particular effects. One was that we were much more conscious about asking ourselves whether we were doing good because we were interacting with the market and we so that made us much more self-reflexive about whether we were doing good stuff. And the other thing was that it gave us quite a lot of autonomy and independence because we weren't relying on government grants or donations. We were fully self-funded through our trading activity, which meant that we could basically say what we wanted. So I found both those things really empowering and that led me to doing a PhD on the social and political uh, aspects of cooperation and cooperatives. And that was pre-social enterprise being a language or a topic, but that led me into a career of doing uh, real-world research on social enterprise. And that leads me to here with a few stops on the way. That sounds like a fair jump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I worked at Melbourne University for a while. I um, took up the first job at Queensland University of Technology, uh, the first job in Australia that was focused on social enterprise research and then subsequently came and started the Centre for Social Impact here at Swinburne. So what was that like for you to have the opportunity to to be one of the first posts focusing on social enterprise? Uh, It was a great privilege uh, and that position was – uh, jointly funded by QUT and the Westpac Foundation. And at that time, it was just an enormous privilege to be able to do that work. Um, but I have to say, uh, it was something of a lonely journey as well. I sometimes joke that I was a communi- community of scholarship of one in Australia for about 15 years. The <laughs> um, conferences must have been awesome. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. And it took quite a long time to communicate, as it does for social entrepreneurs, it took quite a long time to communicate to academics and to governments, et cetera, what the hell this thing is, social enterprise or this field of work, uh, and quite a long time to demonstrate the legitimacy of doing research in that area. So uh, it's telling that um, CSI Swinburne is now the largest social economy research centre in the world, um, but, um, you know, the kind of momentum that's sitting behind it wasn't there 15 years ago. I'm sure, and I do want to take a moment to explain CSI and its place in the overall ecosystem, but before we do that, I'm interested in a word you sort of touched on, the community. Communication. So, so how much of a piece of growing this movement was the word and the language and sort of the way you explain the function of a, a cooperative or a social enterprise? So it's a really big part of it and it's something that many people and sectors still grapple with. What are we talking about? What's in and what's out? Uh, and um, for those of us who've been in the field, either in practice or in research for a long time, we get pretty jaded by that definition conversation. Uh, but that said, it's important because I think – 
we have at the moment common words, but we don't really, we still really don't have a shared language of mm. what we're talking about in relation to the social economy and social innovation. So, um, yes, been a big explaining and defining has actually been a very big part of my work. But um, if if we're at a place now where we've got a lot more people active in the space, it must have been um, the language must have come on leaps and bounds from from what it was in terms of relatability and and sort of you know ability to actually understand the, the concepts and use them in in that kind of um, cross industry parlance. Yeah, absolutely, and that's coming from some some progressive and some arguably regressive places. So, uh, you know, we're seeing whole generations of uh, younger people who are interested in establishing social enterprises and engaging with the language of social entrepreneurship and have often the capabilities, at least at the surface level, to set up businesses online, etc. So there's a there's a fair swell there. I guess the side that's a little bit um, more challenging is the manufacture of civil society that occurs when government outsources services, etc. And so... Um, uh, with, the procurement area? Yeah, so, so social procurement's I guess a particular lever for stimulating markets for social enterprise, but I think I'm talking more about things like NDIS and other, right. um, you know, funding programs that are basically asking civil society organisations to be market facing and yep. to be, you know, trading. And that, you know, there, there's some benefits to that, but there's also some losses because there are, you know, historically really important citizen led. Uh, organizations and services around the country that um, don't you know aren't market aren't market delivered yeah. and don't necessarily have a market solution behind them this sounds like a bit of a conversation about the purpose of different types of organizations yeah. and their, their function within a system yeah. yeah and also about the creation of public value yeah. and who's responsible for doing that that's fascinating and, and that's that to me sort of sits in a bit of contrast with the sexiness if you don't mind me saying of social enterprise and impact and purpose and a lot of the the language today that I think attracts a lot of young people into the space. Yeah, and I I mean it attracts a lot of different people as well. It attracts it attracts people from all sectors. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, the the era in which particular sectors were known to d- deliver particular kinds of values kind of arguably gone to some degree. I mean, we still have, you know, core functions of our different sectors, but, you know, there's a lot more focus in the social impact um, ecosystem we talk about or the social impact uh, system broadly that is not about being engaged in a particular sector. Um, It's about getting stuff done. Uh, And I think that that's, you know, the immediacy of that, the sense that you can get something done, I think is very appealing to mm. people from many generations. Does it mean anything to you that if you were to do like a Google word search or, um, you know, um, regularity search on terms like social impact and social enterprise and purpose and things like that compared just say 2012 to today that it's just, it's, it's you know, exponentially more common in the language. If you go on LinkedIn, everyone is talking about the impact of what they're doing or the purpose of what they're doing and talking about how something that they're doing is going to have some kind of social enterprise element or impact. Do you think, does that sort of weigh on your thinking in any way or reflective of any underlying trend? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's partly reflective of just the, you know, continued heat and energy that's Mm. uh, feeding into this space. Um, But, uh, you know, I guess it's also challenging because, uh, from my personal perspective, because some of this works really hard and some of it, to use your language, is not sexy at all. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, at the level of kind of popular discourse, we tend to be more interested in the hero social entrepreneur or the, you know, the best form of social impact measurement or whatever. And we're kind of pumping a lot of that stuff up when, in fact, in the field itself, there's a lot of 
really ordinary, routine, important work that needs to be done. Yeah. And that's not the sort of thing that you glam up and put on LinkedIn. So in a sense, you know, I see this kind of surface level of collective and sometimes individual self-congratulation. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'm not really sure about that. And I totally agree. And I think perhaps that's a symptom more of LinkedIn than actually, you know, the phenomena I'm describing. Just yeah, that, good that point. Of, yeah, maybe it's more about sort of the heroization of certain yes. elements of how we see ourselves yes. in the space. I have a difficult relationship with LinkedIn because of that. It's complex because it's like we have to be in it, but it's sometimes we kind of detest what it's doing and what yeah. we're doing. So, yeah. Yeah. yes, I can uh, sympathize, empathize there. Um, So maybe a good place to step back and re-enter that conversation around sort of if you can talk a bit about the the role of CSI, Mm -hmm. uh, what it does and its place in the sort of overall ecosystem. Sure. So the Centre for Social Impact or CSI is a partnership between three universities, the University of New South Wales, Swinburne and the University of Western Australia. Uh, Our mission is simple. We exist to create a better world. You know, nothing nothing challenging about that. Um, we are focused on systems thinking, so we look at complex adaptive problems and solutions and, um, you know, you need to take into account the complexity of the types of social change and social impact you might be trying to produce and the problems that uh, different interventions are trying to engage with. Uh, at each of the nodes, uh, as we call them in the network, we teach the Graduate Certificate of Social Impact and we all also teach uh, a master and an undergraduate offering in social impact and probably one of our greatest social impacts insofar as we can attribute ourselves to them is our graduates who are in all sectors, in all walks of life, in all sorts of amazing leadership roles, not just in Australia but around the world. Um, and then in terms of uh, other functions of uh, CSI, we are you know, an academically based network and so we focus very strongly on real world research that is underpinned by the principles of academic rigour that we expect of any academic research activity. Uh, and that means that we do um, quite you know, well designed but quite real world and participatory research a lot of the time. Uh, and we're also engaged in uh, enabling uh, people in the social change ecosystem more broadly through engagement events, you know, uh, public discourse, uh, being involved in things like webinars and our own podcasts, all those sorts of things. So, yeah. It's very well explained. And so if I'm to think about it, I mean, CSI has sort of been a very, I see it as very central force in helping to shape that social impact ecosystem. I'm curious, have you seen a lot of growth in the numbers of um, master's graduates and sort of a graduate diploma and I suppose just graduates overall in your social impact focused? Yeah, so across um, the whole of the CSI network, we've um, see, seen substantial year-on-year growth uh, in people who are taking those programs. Uh, a lot of interest from a changing uh, demographic, if you like, of people. So uh, historically where it might have been uh, people largely from the community sector and to a degree uh, MBA candidates and others who are interested in inflecting their business studies with some social dimension, we're now seeing people from uh, public policy, from government, uh, quite a lot of advisors, so your lawyers, tax, uh, your, lawyers your accountants, um, your media and comms type people who are interested in intersecting with the social impact ecosystem and want to get a bit of, um, you know, some contemporary thinking and access to networks in it. Uh, and, um, and people from across the business domains as well. So social entrepreneurs, but also people from small to medium enterprises and larger corporations. So, I mean, you, I'm not sure whether you would track this or no, but do you kind of have an idea of other graduates, people who are going, in to be entrepreneurs, so you know, um, uh, 
progenating some social impact practices in bigger non-traditionally social impact fields or are these people who are going off to start social impact um, organisations? Yeah. So I think when you take that ecosystem metaphor, that's helpful because what you're looking at is all of the enablers and actors within the system rather than looking for everyone to be a social entrepreneur, for example. We know that, you know, the system itself involves a whole lot of people who will do operations as well as have grand ideas. We know that we need people who are entrepreneurially disruptive within uh, larger institutions. And uh, CSI graduates are everywhere. I mean, I can't begin to explain where they are, but they are everywhere. And some of them are, you know, uh, disrupting from within, some of them are disrupting from without, and some of so them... So the main thing is that they're just disrupting, which is which is good. Well, we say disruptive, you know, very positive. Uh, uh, I feel very positive about it. I was about <laughs> to say, of course, that, that some of our um, uh, graduates are also in, uh, you know, traditional not-for-profit roles and so on, uh, where the disruption is probably not the aim of the game. Uh, yeah. they're, they're providing, you know, really important core services to people who are experiencing a high degree of disadvantage and those roles, those less disruptive roles are just as important. Let's touch on some of the less sexy stuff that you do at CSI. And I, I, I look, it's weird because I find the non-sexy stuff the most sexy, so the research. Stuff. Right. I want to know what it, what are you finding and what, what work are you doing? You talked about your recent evidence forum. Um, I'd love to hear a bit more about your research and what you're finding on the ground is happening in the sector. Yeah. So CSI Swinburne is more than me. It's a large outfit with about 70 researchers in it and I can't do justice to all of the projects that we're working on. Uh, but in terms of some of the th- areas we are working that are the, the, the less sexy, to use the language. Um, but we can steer away from that language because yeah. it's still very sexy. I'm just not sure. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to disband from yeah. that language. Okay, we'll Let's move on. Let's just call it interesting research. Yeah, interesting research. <laughs> um, so uh, we do research on uh, – within the CSI network, we do uh, research on financial literacy, uh, have the financial um, literacy um, index work that's done through UNSW uh, and colleagues there. Uh, within Swinburne, we uh, run the Australian Digital Inclusion Index Project, which is also a longitudinal insight into digital inclusion and exclusion in Australia. Um, in, at UWA CSI, uh, we have projects such as the 100 Families Project, which is a co-designed uh, project for families and uh, people who are experiencing high degrees of poverty and working out what policy solutions they need. And that's going fantastically well. In the social enterprise space, which is my core area, of course, uh, quite a lot of work going on. And I think, I mean, I guess rather than try and tell you every project, the kind of core themes that we're looking at at the moment include uh, actually starting to understand and unpack the social impacts of social enterprise. So a lot of the earlier research was about defining the field yep. and about um, you know management structures and governance arrangements for businesses. Yep. We're now looking more to the outcomes. So what are the outcomes produced for individuals? What are the outcomes produced for their households and families? What are the outcomes produced for communities? And also the big question, whether social enterprises are actually having any kind of transformational systems effect on public policy, social norms, media, et cetera. So um, that's probably the main area where a lot of our research is happening at the moment. And the other thing in relation to the social enterprise research program is the development of tools that actually help uh, small to medium social enterprises in particular to do their work well. Um, I'm, I, I believe that universities exist to produce public value and that's our, uh, it's not competitive advantage, but that's our distinctive offering. Mm. So we're quite active in using our research and investing that into developing tools that are going to be either free or very, very low cost so that different organisations can use them. 
I believe you're about to release one or two very exciting tools. Uh, I think later this year or early next year is one called Amplify. And there's a- so Amplify Social Impact yep. is um, led out of UNS- CSI UNSW yep. and is a really exciting program of work um, with um, a platform of different tools on it that are there to support uh, organisations to help measure their social impacts but also to help us nationally to uh understand and log our social progress so that's the i think the best kind of tool because it kind of works outside and inside so so it's a tool that helps people and it helps you to understand people and what they're doing yeah that's right yeah that's that's fascinating so so that that sounds incredibly exciting and i I guess the way that i came across csi originally was from my very early days starting to um work in the department of health and human services uh tracking social investment and the the childhood journey um to to adulthood and uh for vulnerable groups and the problems they were facing, I had a look around to sort of look for what are the best frameworks out there or tools to use to start to do theories of change and similar types of frameworks for change. And I think it was your compass tool that I originally came across that yeah. I just loved and helped. That, that for me was a real kind of public value moment. So yeah. CSI creating a tool and one of the only tools that I still reference today out there that people can use to help them to do their work better. Yeah. Well, our CEO, Christy Muir, will be very happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we're doing more of that tools development now and some of it's paper-based like the Compass is, but increasingly we're also looking at the use of online technology to – obviously we live in an online world and uh, even though we do also do the work on digital exclusion in Australia, which we need to be mindful of, we're aware that organisations are, you know, increasingly looking to technological um, capability to help with this sort of work. But – the other benefit of doing things online from a research perspective is provided there's clarity with the user about how information is going to be used and provided we're very ethical about not, um, uh, you know, identifying the innocent or the guilty, uh, you get the kind of aggregate effect. If you've got lots of users of an online tool, then at the back end you can aggregate that information to make sense of what's going on in the sector mm. without actually having to ask every individual organisation to fill out yeah. more and more surveys and all of that sort of you thing. You can make sort of informed reasonable assumptions or inferences. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so do you have a view then about sort of some of the more commercially minded players in the space sort of rolling out their own tools and trying to get that kind of yeah. – because so, I think there's a different lens on that. I'm not saying whether it's a – I don't have a view as to whether it's a good or a bad thing, but certainly there are different considerations at play in sort of what's behind that and, you know, yeah. the utility yeah. of it. Yeah, I mean, my area of research is social enterprise and social entrepreneurship, and obviously that means that I'm not, um, you know, I'm not critical of the market per se. Uh, you know, I think interacting with the market and creating uh, some form of private value as well as social and public value is not necessarily a bad thing when it's done well and when the balance is clear. Um, but that said, there is a lot of scope for social washing going on at the moment. And in the social impact measurement and communication space in particular, a whole industry has built up around the fervour that you described, you know, looking from 2012 till now. Uh, I do have my concerns about some of that. Certainly not every provider. I've got a great deal of respect for, for many of them. But I think the main concerns that I have are the privatisation and locking down of knowledge. So every individual organisation commissioning every separate piece of work that they then hold privately and the provider doesn't have any sharing function because that's not what they exist for. So that concerns me, the privatisation of knowledge. And the other bit part of it that does concern me is where there is an exploitative intent. So let us come up with the next tricky um, trademarked brand and, and methodology, which is often, to be honest, simply 
taking standard social research methodologies and branding them up and then sell them to small to medium and, you know, not very um, resource-rich organisations and not just sell it to them once but tell them that they need to do it again in two years' time and we're not going to actually help you build your own internal <laughs> capability to do it. We're just going to come back. So that stuff I find very concerning. Um but I have to say that that's part of what happens when you marketize everything. Yeah. So we can't we can't have it both ways. So, you know. Uh, I think you're totally right. I think it's a very interesting time because I think with these sorts of things, what you see is an expansion and then a contraction. Mm. So hopefully we're at the stage where some of that more predatory kind of um, taking things and repurposing or rebranding them and just p- pushing them out gets a bit found out, and then you know. Uh, Not everyone can survive in that space and it shrinks back down a bit. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we're um, learning within CSI with our tools development, uh, and I'm entirely agnostic about whether CSI built tools are the right tools in many contexts, um, but it's the underlying taxonomy, so the research and evidence that sits in those tools. I've been struck because we get quite a few tech startups come and see us about their new tools and sometimes the front-end interface is just beautiful and I would love it if my boffin (laughs) colleagues could make things look so good. But the underlying taxonomies and logics of the tools isn't great because there hasn't been a lot of thinking done at that foundational level. They're they're, they're like a seductress kind of thing rather than, you know. Yeah, that's right. You can see with those tools that they're very much um, visually seductive but they lack that kind of, that that thinking and crystallised so in a perfect world, we'd yeah. see the integration of that front-end commercial mm. savvy with that back-end kind of evidence-based thinking. Mm. Mm. So moving just a bit more to some of the things that CSI are doing, you've got the startup studio here downstairs at Swinburne as yes. well. Can yeah. you talk a bit about that? Sure. So the Swinburne Social Startup Studio Sorry, started I a few months it. ago. Yeah. No, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. It is a mouthful and we just abbreviate it's, it's a lot of S's, so I just I got tongue-twisted. Yeah. We abbreviate it to the studio. Um <laughs> So the studio started a few months ago and uh, it's uh, supported by equity trustees for three years uh, and it, it's a we call it a percolator for um, a very early stage sort of pre-feasibility and startup social enterprises, particularly those at the very social end of the spectrum. And uh, it, we, we're, we're committed during the three years to supporting 45 social ventures. Uh, we don't, we certainly don't presume that we'll get 45 out the other end, but, uh, you know, we, we want to, um, walk with 45 social ventures to help them strengthen up their business cases and, uh, work out how to resource themselves and, and or to determine that this is not the right approach and to exit, um, with dignity and with, you know, uh, capacity to do the next important thing. Um, and the reason we set it up, I was actually quite uh, reticent originally because I'm not 100% convinced that universities do this acceleration and um, incubation stuff fantastically yeah. well, particularly in relation to hybrid and social businesses. But um, there was a real gap in Melbourne and Victoria uh, emerging, partly because of the social procurement agenda that the Victorian government has initiated. And I don't mean that as a criticism of the social procurement framework, but um, it, what it led to was a number of the intermediary organisations in the ecosystem that had been supporting startups were moving away from supporting startups to focus on supporting mature social enterprises to scale up so that they can be um, providers in this new social procurement market. And so there was a real gap and we're getting a lot of foundations in particular coming to us saying, where do we send people? So 
when we identified there really was a gap, then we decided to start the studio. And, I mean, you know, we've had uh, in the first year we've um, committed to helping 10 organisations. We've already had nearly 40 applications. Mm. So there's certainly and, demand. And so, I mean, that's an interesting one because when you look at the sector, it's it's awash with incubators and accelerators and I think probably less so in the social enterprise space but certainly in, in every other type of startup. Yeah. And the studio is a very bespoke model. It's not a kind of, you know, come in and do a series of workshops model. We're really clear that um, everyone's journey is a bit different and there's going to be touch points where um, organisations and, and founders need to touch in and get support, then step away and so on. So it's a it's a, um, it's a co-designed process for each organisation or 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 founder group that we bring in to the studio. Uh, and then the other part of it, going back to our interest in creating public value, is we've got a wraparound action research uh, commitment. So everyone who's involved in the studio within the realms of what's ethical, and we have um, you know research ethics um, approvals in place, they, they become part of the action research so that we're learning and sharing the learning as we go about the different challenges and opportunities and um, uh, issues that startup social enterprises are facing. So we hope that that will also help crack open this privatization of knowledge mm. that I'm talking that I've talked about already, um, and you know uh, mean that we're actually sharing the journey of all of these organisations as we go. Mm. Well, what are you finding at the moment are some of the biggest barriers to um, social enterprises succeeding? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you have to acknowledge the diversity of social enterprises, which has been part of my um, career work has been, you know, rendering visible the diversity of social enterprises. So not everyone's problems are the same. Um, but if I was going to generalise, I think the, the major ongoing issues that we see, so in the national mapping research that I do, for example, um, and the state-based map for impact that we did for the Victorian government, the main things that we see um, people talking about is, funnily enough, we always think it's finance first. It's actually not. I mean, the cap, you know, getting access to appropriate forms of capital is a challenge for many social enterprises, but it's not the top challenge. Mm. Um, typically, the top challenge is still establishing the legitimacy of the field, both with um, consumers and with other businesses that might buy from business-to-business -business social enterprises, and also convincing government, governments of the merits of social enterprise and the wider social economy and why it might be, you know, useful for our uh, broader economy to stimulate markets for them. Um, not having uh, really strong public policy frameworks, uh, Victoria is an exception to that, um, but that has meant that there's quite a lot of patchiness um, in the sector. And then related to those social enterprises that are particularly focused on employment creation, which is only about a third of the whole of the field, um, but the ones that policymakers in particular are inter interested in, they have some issues with the employment with interacting with the employment services system in Australia, which is um, really not set up for uh, recognising social enterprises as legitimate providers into the current system. Mm. So there is a need to kind of um, reform the employment services system to see employment focused social enterprises getting a bit more of a look in. Yeah. And is that something that you kind of consider to be like a certification type of solution potentially or? No, I mean, certification is very important for social procurement and, um, you know, it's very clear from uh, the work that Social Traders does and research we've done with them that that, that certification process is really important for the social procurement um, agendas that are active around the country. Um, I'm not sure for your regular consumer in the street whether they care that much. I mean, we've seen things like the Fair Trade trademark make 
you know, have really powerful effects. But I'm not sure in Australia we're yet at the point where the public needs to know that something's a certified social do enterprise. You, what do you think of the B Corp movement and sort of how that's um, made that space its own? Yeah, so I think that they've done, you know, the B Corp movement's done a very powerful job of, um, you know, raising the debate around what it is to be a responsible business uh, and, you know, collectively self-identifying a series of practices that they engage with to, you know, be responsible. I think they've done a fantastic job of that in terms of um, both raising the debate and also creating their their movement. Um, And I think that's one of the things interesting about the B Corp movement is that there is agreement about the uh, underpinning features of um, responsible business behaviour that they certify against. Whereas because the social enterprise field is so diverse, there's it's not clear that there is, you know, there are, I mean, I've, I helped, well, I wrote the definition that's largely used for social enterprise in Australia. So it's not that we can't come up with definitions, but internally there's a hell of a lot of diversity in terms of practices that is quite different to the B Corp movement. And so, I mean, even definitionally, it seems like it's taken some time to get to any sort of kind of headway or agreement. And even even now, do you, is it very much like if I asked a sample of people who are in the sector and not in the sector, what is a social enterprise, would I get a consistent answer? Uh, no, you wouldn't get a consistent answer. And there's no universal definition. There's no single definition in Australia. There's no internationally universal definition. And you see different inflections in different um, parts of the world. So, for example, in Europe, there's a much stronger focus on stakeholder engagement mm. and um, uh, democracy, democracy of decision-making, which comes from the co-op movement. Um, and we don't have that inflection on social enterprise here, even though I personally would like to see it. Let's come back to the technical uh, in a second. And for a minute, um, can we just do our Patreon Humans of Purpose Plus section where we do a bit of a deep dive and ask you some quick fire or, you know, not really that quick fire. We can take it slow. Uh, questions, if that's okay. Sure. So my first question is, what is one thing you believe that others don't? And this is like an unpopular view or opinion of the world. My God, that's a really clever question. Mm. We're going to have to take it slow because I'm going to have to think about that. Do you want to come back to it? Yeah, can we come back of to course, it? Of course, of course. It's no phone a friend though. No, that's fine. <laughs> what is your morning and evening routine? Uh, I'm a total workaholic. So my morning routine is I get up at about 6.15 and have my breakfast and then start work at about 20 to 7, much to the sadness of my dog who would rather that I take her out. Um, my evening routine is usually uh, – a glass of wine, Netflix, and some kind of hysterical multitasking on social media. <laughs> uh, hopefully at some point during the day I've had some exercise. If I haven't, I go for a walk in the evening. Um, I have a few questions, uh, if, I, if I may. What's on Netflix at the moment for you? Um, so uh, Fleabag I'm just catching up with. I watched a bit of it on, t- on an aeroplane and then haven't followed it up. So now that's become such a hot thing I'm watching it. Um, I'm also watching some really, really not very good detective series from oh, we all are. Canada called The Republic of – what's it called? The Republic of Doyle. Which, I'm not sure if that's a recommendation. No. I feel like it's sort of not, so, but I still well, will check it out. Well, if you're interested in Newfoundland, I, I actually watch it for the cultural <laughs> references because it's based in Newfoundland and there's not many television shows that I have access to that are based in Newfoundland. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm definitely going to check that out. And so that's the routine and – you didn't mention breakfast. I'm always curious. What do people have for breakfast? Um, so I'm generally a porridge with fruit person. I'm 
a shame to say that I put peanut butter in my porridge. Oh, that's a great idea. We'll but I quite like it. Uh, and But I try to mix it up. So in the summer, I'm a banana smoothie person. Is there anything sweet to balance the peanut butter or is it just peanut butter and porridge? I oh, know there's usually a little touch of maple syrup in okay. there. But the fruit adds most of the sweet. Great. I'm comforted. Uh, what is the best thing you've added into your life or routine in the past six months? Oh, good question. Um, I think uh, re-engaging with exercise. So I've got multiple sclerosis and I'm really aware of my need to remain fit. If I don't, then everything turns to rubbish. Um, but um, I had a period of being sick for about six months, so uh, it was pretty hard. So I'm just getting back into my routine and I really, you know, at the end of every workout or I just feel so much better and so much more myself, I'm reminded how important it is. And so what kind of exercise are you into at the moment? So uh, because of the MS, I've got quite um, bad balance problems and weakness down my right side. So I spend quite a lot of time on the cross trainer at the gym because that holds me up. Um, and I'm also obsessed with kettlebells. I love kettlebell training. Oh, okay. Kettlebells. Haven't heard that one. That's good. Um, what is one book that everyone should read? So just going back to my background in English literature, you might, from an, from an academic specialised in social enterprise, you might think the answer is a social enterprise book. I, but, I was going to say that, but, but I don't presume. Yeah, but actually, If I Ran the Circus by Dr. Seuss is one of the best books ever written. So, um, say it again, what was it? If I Ran the Circus, ran by, the Dr. Circus. by Dr. Seuss, um, if you're interested in a little bit of um, chaos and revolution. Um, Can we get your PhD thesis and then, you know, use that as a kind of uh, way in? Absolutely. <laughs> um, and A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley, which is now – an old book, but was a contemporary reworking of uh, King Lear set in uh, Midwest United States from the daughter's perspective. It's a fantastic novel. Brilliant. Brilliant. Is there a quote or expression that you try to live by? Uh, my colleagues tell me that uh, one that I said once at a conference, which was buckle up, was you know quite uh, symptomatic of who I am. Um, but I don't think that I actually seek to live by that. I think in my work and my um, uh, my voluntary work as a chairperson, I try to operate on the premise of uh, how can I say yes rather than defaulting to saying no. That's beautiful. What's one thing that you think people should do more, and one thing that one thing that you think people should do less? People should be more self-reflexive and I don't mean that they should be neurotic and self-obsessed. I mean that they should be more reflexive about their power, their privilege and their contribution to the world. Um, I think it's really important that we're in touch with not just not being apologists for having power but actually how can we, we can use that for good. Um, what should we do less of? Well, gosh, there's a lot of there's a lot of things we should do less of right now, but main, mainly let's do less of killing the planet. That'd help. How does a sense of purpose influence how you live your life? So I'm absolutely driven by purpose, and I sometimes think that that's to my detriment on an individual level in terms of my well being. But I, for whatever reason, whether it's nature or nurture, I feel absolutely driven by making a difference in the world and quite conflicted as I think many um, activist-oriented people feel quite conflicted about my lack of capacity to, you know, get there. Um, I, I'm Yeah, and we it's interesting here at CSI Swinburne, we've, we've 
attracted a large number of people who are similarly driven by purpose. It's quite um, interesting working in a team, a large team where that's the kind of dominant um, uh, driver. Uh, it, I think it makes us all aware of how we need to look after each other and ourselves better in the in the um, course of doing that kind of work. I want to pick that that thread in a minute, yeah. um, but I'll just give you a chance if you want to revisit the first question. If, um, what is one thing you believe that others don't? Um. I still don't know if I've got a good answer for it. Um, I, I, I am a strange combination, I believe, of being extremely uh, feral and revolutionary, but also a complete pragmatist and a humanist. So I do think that there is potential in everyone, and I, I genuinely, I genuinely think that I, you know, I started as a young activist, being much more kind of black and white about who was good, bad and ugly. Um, but over the years I've realised that there is, there is excellence in everyone and there, is, uh, ex- there, is ex- there are excellent people everywhere. So may I ask you do, you, do you sort of, do you now think more in shades of grey than black and white? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, I still have my fairly fierce non-negotiables um, around treating people and planet with, you know, appropriate levels of uh, respect and care. But that said, I see a lot of nuance. And I also, I guess, over many years of being involved in community activism and um, conflict resolution, etc. There's often a lot of unstated needs that are sitting behind the sort of stated solutions and practices. And I think it's very important in terms of social change to get down to what the needs are. Usually you find there's less conflict in the needs than there appears to be in the stated solutions to things. And if you can dig down and find out what's really driving this person or organisation's need, you can often find points of connection. I totally agree. And I also think that um, it's very much like, is this something that we can solve inclusively? Or are we trying to exclude the players that could help solve it? Yeah, it's a bit of the question. Yeah, and I think that that's right. And I'm, I, I think I'm, I don't feel like I've got a one hundred percent homogenous position on that because my own work and my own personality tendencies are to be connective and collaborative, etc. And I really believe in that. But I also think it is perfectly okay to disagree with each other. Controversy and difference is how we get to change. 100%. Yeah. But I think my point was more like, you know, everyone should have a chance to put their view and yeah. and um, they should they should be ready for it to be shut down equally by good argument yeah. if it's there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things about that that's really important is recognising that there are very diverse kinds of knowledge and experience out there and that's something as, as an academic we have to take real care around is, you know, we're called experts, but frankly, all we are are people who spent quite a few years obsessively focusing on a topic so that we could get a PhD. doesn't make me expert on, for example, how to manage my rubbish. Like my rubbish man and my <laughs> counsel are much better at that than I am. So we need to recognise the diverse sources of knowledge and and not not kind of reproduce the hierarchies of knowledge that I think have gotten us into a lot of our social and environmental problems. So just harking back to your point on uh, your very, you know, working with a group of people who are very focused and purpose-driven, um, have you always had that mix at work? And if, I'm just curious, what's that like and how does it sort of, um, what, what are its upside and downsides per se? Yeah. So I think, I mean, academia 
generally speaking, is a vocational profession. People are in it because they identify um, with it as people and, you know, their identities are often bound up with their research and teaching work. Um, But in terms of working with groups of people who are highly normative about changing the world, um, I have done that in one other research centre at QUT, but here it's, you know, it's a pretty driving agenda. And it does make us not the same as everybody else in the university, which isn't to say, of course, we've got fantastically able change makers, to use that terminology across the university, but um, we're just unapologetically normative about what we try to do. And that is quite confronting in academia because in academia, one of the things that we're taught is that we're meant to be objective and to stand back and to be dispassionate and so on. I don't believe that and my team doesn't believe that. We believe that um, actually we must practice the principles of rigour, which is what is the underpinning, you know, excellence of being an academic, but you can be rigorous and have a kind of stated social objective at the same time. I love that. And I, I think that resonates so well with me. And it's probably one of the reasons why I have gravitated towards the work of what the CSI are doing and sort of certainly in this space to be able to um, make it okay to be doing hard work on solving problems using yeah. evidence and sort of rational inquiry, but also to move towards a position of, of, of social betterment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, I mean, one of the things that we try to do across the network is, well, what, what, what can we repurpose? What data and evidence can we repurpose to uh, invest into systems change? So, you know, what do we already know and what can we already draw on rather than create a whole lot of new stuff? But then also recognising where we must work across sectors and with communities and with citizens, because we are not the holders of all expertise. What I think the CSI network potentially is, is a steward and a broker. uh, And then within it, we have particular subject matter expertise. But there is, you know, no single organisation or network has the potential to solve the complexity of problems that we face. You made an interesting comment earlier about um, the role of work and identity and you feel very much like a lifetime academic. Have you always worked in uni, sort of since day dot? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I mean, a lot of my research involves working out in the world um, and but when you ask me that question, yes, even when I wasn't an academic, I worked in the <laughs> university sector. So my first real job um, uh, was uh, in the student union at University of Technology, Sydney, and then I worked as an equity and diversity manager in higher education for a couple of years while I was finishing my PhD. So, um, I mean, obviously I had some other jobs as a young person out there in the world, but, sure. um, the, yeah, I'm, I, I kind of never left school really. Do you, do you ever like think or have fantasies about sort of just going to work for a, a company like an ASX 200 company or government or, you know, just, just any – any outside, yeah. you know, just sometimes people just wonder what would it be like to be here. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm entrepreneurial, yeah. thinking about my next career move on, you know, any given day. Yeah. Um, I don't think about joining um, large companies. I have very limited interest in them. Uh, I I do think about sometimes whether I might shift into the not-for-profit sector, um, but I think that I'm so used to the uh, flexibility um, of being in the academic context that I'm not sure that I could ever take up a salaried job in another sector. Um, yeah. Fascinating. Very fa- I, I just think that the questions about work and how we see ourselves are absolutely fascinating to me. Mm. But but I think, you know, the academic world seems to be doing such interesting things at a time when um, other parts of the machine maybe are not doing or, or sort, of, sort of just, you know, um, seeming to do interesting things but not able to having the same uh, 
ability to pull and wrap around all the stakeholders in the system to create that collective change that I, I think is most interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, universities historically have been, uh, you know, safe, independent pairs of hands and that's sort of what we – I mean, I'm not saying that we that universities have moved a long way away from that, but that's sort of what I'm trying to dial up in terms of what CSI Swinburne can offer is that we're here for the long haul, we exist for public value and we're independent of – in, you know, particular vested interests. So that means that we can provide the kind of um, stewardship infrastructure to support some initiatives, include you know, ones that we lead but also others that are co-produced. Um, and I think that's important. I, academia is an interesting space. You can reinvent yourself over and over again through a career so you don't really need to leave the university to, you know, have creative um, interests and, and reinventions. In terms of, in you know, there are a lot of great academics around and I don't like to make generalisations about anything really, but, um, you know, I, I do struggle a little bit where I'm surrounded by academics who have got like a solution looking for a problem and I think that that's, that's, that's an evolutionary issue for… It's not just universities, I'll tell you. Uh, no, I, I know it's not. That, that, this is the world I inhabit. Um, but um, that's, the, that's what we're really interested in. So the Social Enterprise Evidence Forum we ran recently, that was an event that brought together about 80 decision makers from across sectors with researchers from five universities. And what we were trying to surface there was the community of people from different sectors who you know, really want to do this kind of work, like let's do good evidence-based research to help advance the field in order to, you know, affect social change and let's surface the academics who are really interested in doing that kind of work um, because not everybody is um, and we need to find the ones that are. It's, it's extremely well, very well said. So I, I want to ask you just a little bit about some of the other areas of your life outside of the university. You, you're involved in a number of um, boards now. Sure. And so Ceres, Westpac. Um, what's it like and how important do you think it is to sort of have involvement with other boards and governance structures beyond your immediate work and how's that added value to your life? Yeah, so I'm the chairperson of Ceres Environment Park here in Melbourne. I'm on the board of the Westpac Foundation, not Westpac. Sorry. But that'd be quite, <laughs> that could be quite a step up. Um, <laughs> Um, and, um, it's really, I think it's really important to be engaged in those, um, activities, partly because you're lending your skills and knowledge to, you know, other parts of the field that, that, um, need it. Um, and partly because it keeps you in, uh, touch with what's going on in other parts of the sector. Now, I don't, um, kid myself that being on a board means that I've got a good operational understanding of what's going on at the coalface. That's absolutely not right. Um, but, um, you know, it is, it's it's important, I think, to be, you know, to put your money where your mouth is in terms of your civic contribution. So, you know, uh, people like me, frankly, get paid very decent amounts of money to, you know, be morally um, upright uh, in our work and that's a really, really privileged position. So part of what I need to do is to give back through my uh, volunteering work and these days, I you know, I've, I've always had a history of volunteering, but these days my volunteer work happens primarily through uh, governance board arrangements. Terrific. And I'm also curious about sort of the role that mentorship has played in your life. I understand in academia there's probably a lot more support and formal mentorship mechanisms around PhD, et cetera, but have you – you know, you're, I guess it's a hard one for you because your, your pathway is almost very uncharted, um, as, as I guess many people's are. But in your experience, did you sort of have mentors very early on in your career yeah, that helped? Yeah, absolutely. So 
the late Mark Lyons, who was Emeritus Professor of Social Economy at the University of Technology, Sydney, who really was, I mean, you know, he, he was the pioneer of um, not-for-profit and social economy work uh, in Australia, particularly on the social economy side. Uh, Jenny Onyx, also from UTS, was uh, very uh, active in the leadership around third sector, not-for-profit research studies. And um, uh, Miles McGregor-Lowndes, who was my boss at Queensland University of Technology uh, in the Australian Centre for Philanthropy and Non-Profit Studies. I mean, they, they were the three uh, preeminent uh, researchers um, in Australia in that sort of mixed field, if you like. Um, they all do different things, but all of them played a mentoring role with me at some point. And also Mark Considine at Melbourne University, um, who was the uh, – the um, uh, head of the department that I first went into there. And, you know, through all of those people, I learnt research skills. I was given opportunities to forge relationships with industry uh, and with government. And without some of those uh, opportunities, I wouldn't be here uh, purely because like in any career trajectory, you know, you're only as good as the opportunities that are made available to you. And my reflection on what those people did well, and they're all different in their styles of mentoring, but generally speaking, what they did well was be generous. Um, and I try to practice that in my work and my mentoring of others. Um, I'm conscious that we've kind of built an empire at CSI Swinburne in that we are the largest social economy research centre in the world and we're doing a very large proportion of the research, the applied research in the country. But I'm really aware of the importance of not holding it close to me and it not being about me and making sure that I'm enabling others because at some point, to be perfectly honest, I'd like to stop and I'd like others to be able to do it. So if I don't enable them, then I'm actually shooting myself in the foot as well as not being generous. I just want you to tell me, is there anyone or a few people who you think are really doing amazing things in this space um, or your sphere of, uh, of influence generally who you think would be a good fit for the podcast? Yeah, so um, quite a few of the people who I think are doing amazing work in this space have already been on your podcast, which is a, <laughs> I suppose that's a good tick. <laughs> testament to you. That's right. Um, but who's out there? Um, Molly Whelan from Foundation for Young Australians I think would have you know a lot of deep insights to share. Um, Luke Terry from Vanguard Laundry Services um, and White Box, who really, I think, you know, uh, has led the way in a sort of social procurement approach to startup in social enterprise. Um, Carolyn Curtis, who runs the Australian Centre for Social Innovation, who I think brings a, a, a fierce and very sensible um, uh, sensibility to social innovation work of which social enterprise is only one small part. Um, but I think, you know, uh, Carolyn in particular talks about the, the the boring work of innovation, you know, the the, the work that's that's less sexy. Um, I could go on and on. I mean, there are that's a good amount. That's that's an yeah. awesome offering. Thank you. Most people just have to say I don't know one or one. So yeah. that was great. You exceeded my expectations. Um, so I'm keen to understand um, how people can connect with you and learn more about your work and also the centre and sort of if you have an ask, like you know, if people you know what's coming up maybe or a, a final call to action for our listeners. Sure. So um, uh, university academics are all completely available online, so I won't uh, spell out uh, my details, but uh, people, if people are interested, they can make any form of connection through LinkedIn, through uh, the CSI Swinburne website, through the CSI National website, which is csiedu.au, um, or just look up my my um, 
email address. Uh, demand, external demand exceeds my capacity to supply most of the time. So don't be alarmed if you don't hear from me for a while. Awesome. And uh, so that, that's how to contact you. Um, and I think that just about does us. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. A pleasure. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 